The Plumley Pod, episode 53. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is Dr. Nick Collistrom. I will not give you a huge introduction because his intelligence and his research will speak for itself. He is the author of Terror on the Tube, Behind the Veil of 7-7, the greatest book I have ever read on anything to do with false flag terrorism. And for those of you who are snooty snooty about false flag terrorism, it has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It is to do, goes, it heralds back to the naval days and I have nobody better here than to educate us on this really important part of how the state or states behave. Dr. Nick Collison, welcome to the podcast. And can you please just flesh out for us what on earth is Operation Gladio? Well, it's a pleasure and privilege to be here, Sarah. I was a science historian and no idea that I was going to become any sort of expert on this dire idea of the government blowing up and killing its own citizens. It's an extremely extremely diabolical 21st century art form that, as you say, has its roots somewhat in earlier ages, but it's very much flourished in this century. And it used to be quite unthinkable that any government would do such a thing. And in the wake of the great 9-11 event, the great transcendent event at the beginning of this millennium, we all had to try and think again. It became increasingly evident that the designated enemy of the event could not have been the 19 Muslim hijackers who don't seem to have been on the planes or anywhere near the place, and half of them claimed to be still alive. And a whole long story unfolded whereby some kind of hidden hand had done the whole thing. So uh, we then had this new enemy was designated, Al-Qaeda, and it was Islamic, and it totally replaced the old enemy, which was communism. So we, we had this extremely unpleasant idea, which is not something you want to believe, that the government needs to have an enemy because its military-industrial complex is so large that, uh, especially America, 800 military bases all around the world, it needs a simple rationale for what they're all doing there, and it couldn't any longer say it was fighting communism, and instead it became the war on terror, a, a, a quite meaningless and absurd kind of meme. But that became the story... And because of its enormous geopolitical power, uh, that story had to be enacted in capital cities around Europe. The dreadful news. I think I've heard you refer to it as the war of terror rather than the war on terror. Is that, war would of that terror be accurate? Or, or, or whatever, yeah. But uh, <laughs> a, a, a dreadful new theatre started to blossom. And first of it was in Spain. We had, in 2004, Madrid a blowing up of uh, a load of trains and Muslims were implicated, and I won't go into the details, but they were arrested and charged, and there was a whole lot of circumstantial evidence that government and police agents had planted the explosive on the trains. So there's a whole lot of really dead people and real damage, and why on earth would a government do that? And in a way, the answer is simply that the plan was for a whole lot of Islamic nations to be bombed which we've seen in a dreadful manner in this 21st century. And for that to happen, 
the new enemy had to burn into everybody's consciousness of, of uh, the concept Islamic terror. And that became so well embedded that when you say Islam, you practically think Islamic terror, okay? It's beautifully put. That is such a, I've never heard a gr such a great prelude to anything. Your very, your, your information is so dense and so intelligent and detailed. May I ask you a personal question? Was it 9-11 that really triggered you here to research false flag terrorism? Or were you well on the page before that? Yeah, no, I wasn't. Not at all. No, no. And I became part of a founder a group, Nalem Truth, which a bunch of us met up in London. And I loved hearing all the stories, the extremely strange twists and turns of, of, of the story. And, and we listened to it, what was real, what wasn't. So I was in that movement when the, London, the bombs went off with the London bombing. In 7-7 seven, seven in 2005. Seven, seven. So you were yeah. already involved in 9-11, their search for truth, right? Yeah. Now that Spanish Madrid event went off 911 days after 9-11, which the Spanish <laughs> authorities noted. That's a funny okay. number, Dr. Nick. Well, okay. And then the London bombs on July 7th, which some people feel signify 777, 7th of July 2005, 2-5 adding up to 7. Um, numerology does seem to work in, in, in these events. The, the, the bombs went off synchronously. The Allgate bomb went off at 11, sorry, three different underground stations where the bombs went off, right? Allgate went off at 11 minutes to nine. And the, the three bombs went off within half a minute. So and they were attributed to three different, three different suicide, um, Islamic suicides, which is a kind of story which is made up by the government. They had backpacks scheduled to blow up. Now, they can't, you can't really have three different people on the underground, young men with no known animus against the government at all, no known political interests, who suddenly have an urge to blow up a lot of people on the underground. Um, you can't really have them blowing them up all within half a minute, the three trains. Not at all. And I, two of them were not, well, quite possibly assets of the state, MI5, and I'm sure you'll come to this in a moment, Mohammed Sadiq or Mohammed Sadiqi Khan and Shazed Tanweer were actually implicated in Operation Crevice. But I won't steal your thunder because I know you're much more researched on this than I. Just before we dive into the specifics of 7-7, which right. I know you are, if not the world's leading expert, then very close to it on. Goodness just question. can you That's just right No, no, it's uh, absolutely true. I've read your books. I've watched all of the interviews you've given on this topic. And I have to say, sir, absolutely extraordinary. I even wrote to you that I, you know, this is the best book on false flag terrorism I've ever read. You know, I've read lots of them. <laughs> so Terror on the Tube is my absolute favourite. And I'm a little bit biased because I'm English, but my only bias is that I'm English. It's not because it's the only what, only time when the English state have done something horrific. Just before we dive into 7-7, because the first thing I'm going to have to do is explain to people what the official narrative was, because many people actually don't remember or were never even aware of it. So many people have, woke, so many people have woken up during what I call COVID-1984 that they're not aware of this case at all. But before we dive into that, can you, would you just mind laying out for two or three minutes your academic background and who you are? Because your academics are absolutely remarkable and so few people can speak about these kinds of things from your academic background. So please, if you could lay them out, I'd really appreciate I know you're very shy and very modest, but please, if you could just tell us who you are and where you've been. All right. be well, I've got a couple of history science degrees, which nobody's interested at all in what I used to do. It's left my whole life devising too. When after I chucked out of college, my life began because I got interested in these sort of issues. And that is what everyone talks about. 
academia was kind of comfortable, but uh, you published the old research papers, but it was an extremely isolated, abstract world that I did my time in. And I was especially focused on Isaac Newton, actually. I did stuff, his work and the moon and stuff. And I mean, it's quite interesting at the time, but perhaps I wouldn't rec really recommend being, being in, into that. I, I don't think it's much respected these days. But it's where you've come from. You've come from the institutions, haven't you? Which is the institution that you're, you're famed to come from? I was at UCL when the 77 thing went off. It's just on the doorstep of my college. And the authorities of UCL were extremely disproving that, that a member of staff of their college would take an interest in it. Why not just believe what the government says? And I think that was partly how I got it drawn into it, that I knew that part of town so well. Well, I think personally, it was very brave of you. Oh, probably very brave. Say, I, I've been a, a maths teacher, like, like you, not, not very successful, and has been worked in a science lab once. So I've never really had much of a career apart from a bit of time in, in, in college. So I'm a sort of self-published author now. Okay, should we go over the official narrative of what happened? Please do. Please tell us what they say happened. Okay, well, I've... Just before the London bombing, there was this big meet-up of Bush and Blair at a big meeting in, in, in Scotland, top politicians, G7, it was called. Glen Eagles. Glen, Glen Eagles. Eagles, yeah. They were getting together and ha had this handshake, which seems to be kind of a, a sign for the bombs to go off almost. And they were promoting, let's recall, the, the war on terror. So this whole thing totally reinforced the, the the war on terror that those two were managing, and they defined it as being anti-Islam. Okay, then there was a whole thing about a live aid concert going off, and would it be in London? So it was a very tense sort of experience that people in London were being put through. And then suddenly, on that morning, on July the 7th, four bombs apparently go off, and... A few months before, there'd been a panorama program with an exact rerun of this, which was supposed to be a kind of rolling news docudrama, as if it were news. We had a Jack Straw lookalike saying, this bears all the hallmarks of Al-Qaeda, which is exactly what Jack Straw did say on the day. We have Peter Power, who runs this sort of businesses, how firms can build in resilience. Resilience means you're going to get a terror attack and you might as well take our advice about how to prepare for it, okay? So all the actions of preparing for the terrorist attack then subtly morph into the event itself. This is the incredibly strange trick that is at the core of fabricated terror event. It's an extremely strange and difficult thing to grasp. It's obviously rather hidden and elusive. Anyway, he was on that program, Panorama program, talking about the event, and you had three, London, three subway bombs going off and one a lorry or something on the roads in London. So it was a four-fold event. They mocked up and they then said, obviously, this is Al-Qaeda. That was the blame. And so it was a total mock-up of what was about to happen and how all the wounded people... We must lay this out for people, Dr. Nick, because you're well into it and I know your research is extraordinary in, in this case and I've followed it for many, many years. But basically what you're saying is there was a tabletop exercise for the purposes of some kind of panorama, docudrama, docu-mockumentary, where suits, people in suits around the table were discussing what we would do in the event 
of an extreme terrorist attack in London. And I believe, and you can correct me in a moment if I'm wrong, but one of these people was as was Portillo, the politician for the politician Martin Portillo. He was there. Michael Portillo, I beg your pardon. Yeah, he was that's actually, right. Yeah. He was there amongst other people discussing what we quote unquote would do in the event of a terrorist attack. Now the problem is that one of the guys, Peter Power, that you've already mentioned, was in charge of a resilience, let's get prepared for terrorism kind of company. And he actually pops up on the 7-7 day in and of itself. Absolutely, right, yeah. Right, so let's dive in, because I I see exactly where you're going with this. But people need to realize that this, because many, many people that are listening to this now are aware of 901, the tabletop, quote-unquote, pandemic exercise that was conducted prior to COVID-1984. Yeah, right. This was another tabletop exercise. And this is, well, for me, it has immediate echoes of exactly this sort of thing. This was on panel. This was on mainstream BBC primetime viewing. And the fact that Peter Powell was there is beyond extraordinary. But I'll let you expand because I know this is your area of research. Please go ahead. Well, he, once the previous occasions, he'd been doing his resilience thing of preparing for a Sarah event when it actually happened on the underground. And he would talk about how this shows how much you need to be prepared for the event. And then on the morning 7 7, he came out and said he was doing an exercise for a business company with the same three tube stations and at the same time, nine o'clock in the morning, as the events actually happened. And the question is, why did he come out and say that on the afternoon of, of Let Sunday? me just stop you there because that is extraordinary. I know to you and me, we've heard this a million times before, but that is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. This guy, this suit, this man in charge of a business who helps you to prepare for disasters, let's say, he is saying that the three sites in which bombs allegedly went off were the sites which they were pretending were going to go off on the same day at the same time in a tabletop exercise or bigger of some description. Now, I'm a mathematics teacher. I'm not a mathematician. and You're probably a better mathematician than me. Let's put it that way. But I'm a mathematics teacher. And even I know that the odds on that are zero. They're basically zero. Yeah, they are zero, so yeah, infinitesimally yeah. small, it tends towards zero. So th- we're actually saying this gentleman went live saying, oh, yes, isn't it terribly funny? What an awful coincidence. The three tube stations that we had identified in our mock, our drill, our practice terrorism event actually turned out to be the real ones on the real day at the real time. Is, how, is, how is that? Dr. Nick, how is that real? He said we had to switch from... What did you say? I had to switch from uh, tabletop. Slow time thinking to real time doing or something to that effect. Yeah. Slow time thinking to real time action. Yeah. Yep. King's Cross is one of the stations right, where all the action was. Things blew up and a lot of bewildered crowds started surging out across King's Cross. Uh, and they met various people who were obviously part of a drill where they got blood and bandages or whatever. And a whole lot of police were around there, obviously preparing some sort of drill. So people have speculated. Where exactly was Peter Power's thing actually happening live? Uh, because you never told us that. But uh, it, it would make sense if it was around King's Cross, yeah. Beautiful. Before we dive into the ins and outs of it, can you just give people the official government narrative of what took place that day and who it involved very, very slowly and very, very carefully? Because believe it or not, we're, we're, this is quite a long time ago now, uh, and people, some people have no comprehension of what on earth we're talking about. So before we go into the... Manushaik, just give me the government version of what happened that day in your own right. time. Please. The government version was that there were four lads in Leeds, Beeston area, 
and one in Aylesbury who had a, a scheme to blow up, cause immense damage in, in London. And they somehow got together for no sort of known reason. And they, three of them drove early in the morning, very early morning, down to Luton Station. They then got on a train, uh, uh, and then they met the fourth one. They were from Asbury in the car park there, about well, six o'clock or so in the morning. And they then caught a train, the 740 train, which went down to King's Cross. And the story was they would then split up and go their way. So three different underground stations, three different underground trains. One was Liverpool Street. The other was, was it, uh, Allgate. And, and Allgate, Liverpool Street, and I think it was Edgware Road. And the other one would go to Tavistock Square, which is just down the road from King's Cross. Where they Even got though out. the bussy court didn't actually stop at Tavistock Square, but we'll come to that shortly. Yeah, certainly impossible. We'll come to that shortly. <laughs> so they supposedly then blew up. That, that very soon, it's difficult to tell you for a story, that all, this all came out a week or so later, after the explosions. Those were absolutely real, and you had, you really did have tube coaches blown up, and a lot of people dead, wounded, with limbs missing, and it was pure horror underground, and one overground at Tavistock Square. And then, immediately afterwards, Tony Blair rushes back from Glenelg in Scotland, London, and he informs everybody, this is an Islamic crime. We know that this is Al-Qaeda. So, in a way, the police don't have to hunt for the suspect. They're told by the Prime Minister, this is the new war on terror concept, they're told by the Prime Minister that it's done by Islamic terrorists, long before there could have been any evidence for that, just in the same way that George Bush said on the same day of now, that it was Osama bin Laden and Islamic terrorists. Um, so, that is the new war on terror approach. And then after that, the police, as it were, had to begin their operation. And they started off with some experts who said there'd been high-powered explosive, which they call C4, as a plastic explosive used and made by NATO, which gives blast, but no light or smoke or anything, or no fire. Yeah, no flash, no flash. Yeah, yeah. No flash, right. And that looked like that, but used... It looked like it had been put under the coach, especially at Edgware Road, where the whole coach lifted off. You got a whole lot of, a whole lot of witnesses interviewed at Edgware Road uh, that morning by the Guardian journalists, <laughs> who, and they all described vividly the coach lifting off the ground from the blast underneath it. And a whole lot of the wounded people had feet and ankles and legs blown off. Absolutely. Th this is... Your memory, your recall is absolutely extraordinary, Dr. Nick. I've had to swat all, re all weekend rereading your book to get even half of this info that you've just given to us there off the top of your head. Absolutely wonderful. Just for the listeners who are not familiar with this situation, the idea was that these so-called Muslim terrorists had carried backpacks onto these backpacks. tube trains. Yeah. Exactly. And is it T-A-C-T? T-A-C-P, is that the correct acronym? for No, T-A-T-P. Ah, T-A-T-P, thank you very much. So the acronym is, is T-A-T-P. That came later on, you see. Uh-huh, of course. The explosive use gradually changed. It actually went changed. through three, sta three stages. T-A-T-P is the second one. Um, I've just finished saying that that report from Edgeware Road 
couldn't be deleted. The Guardian was very soon told that was not the story. No, there's supposed to be a terrorist who blew himself up there. The original reports, which the Guardian could not delete, that's very interesting, from the report, had basically three different holes in, the, in a coach, the Edgware Road. It was not a single coach. There wasn't a single location of where there was a blast. And the remains of the coach seemed to have uh, the iron of the floor sticking upwards, bent upwards, as if there was a blast from below. Uh, and uh, it's very extraordinary. You might have thought the most obvious and major evidence for whatever happened was the coaches. And could not the journalists have a look at the shock journalists, see the coaches, the amazing evidence for the oh, terror attack? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 Dr. Nick. They're not journalists. They're journal liars. They are the journal liars. Of course, they're not going to look at the evidence. Yeah, they're not well, going to look no, at the evidence, no, so, are they? No, no, no. Nah. So what you're saying is, very briefly, so the official story is that these quote-unquote Muslim terrorists had bombs in their backpacks and they got on the tube and they detonated them. The only problem is, if you detonate a bomb in the carriage, then it's very likely that the floor is going to cave outwards. Now, unfortunately, all of the photographs, the official photographs, not conspiracy theorist photographs, the official photographs from the day, show that metal is spiking upwards, as in the blast has come from underneath the carriages. Now, oh, dear, how yeah. did backpack bombs blow up a carriage in that manner? That is the first problem. The second problem is, this, is the fact that the kind of explosives used are military-grade, and Dr. Nick will, will fill me in on this in a second, but essentially, they are military-grade explosives that cannot be made by civilians. You would have to purchase them or acquire them from the military. Thirdly, thirdly, and this is a massive point that I've, um, Dr. Nitt's interview on Richard D. Hall's richplanet.net is extraordinary about this. You'll have to go into the archives, richplanet.net. And if you search 7-7, you'll find uh, many of Dr. Nick's interviews. He talks about these three holes in the carriage at Edge, the Edgware Road Blast. The problem is, guys, I know you've not thought about this because it's kind of gross, but if there's one bomber with one backpack, which is the official narrative, how the hell are there three holes in this carriage? And we know there are because three different people fell into them, did they not? Well, three we different found them, yeah, yeah. But right. nobody could ever see them. One thing nobody did to see, absolutely not, was any of the coaches. They got taken off some army depot farm bro, never heard of again. So <laughs> it's very bizarre that the main evidence cannot be seen by, by anybody. But they told us three holes, right? Because we know because three well, different no. people... Har Har how, did, how did that work? How did that work? Harold, the, the witnesses, there were detailed interrogation of these witnesses, very, very grueling of what was experienced. And I inferred from those descriptions that there were three different holes at three different places. Nobody came out and said, certainly no government guy came out and said, the nearest you get, the government said, is the way the hole appears next to one set of double doors in the tube and then somebody else objects they say no hang on I, I, I was there and then the hole moves to another set of double doors well there couldn't be anything more evident than a huge hole in the floor of a tube coach so it's extremely strange if they can't show the coaches to anybody and are unclear about where it went off so I, I would say whatever went off was much more rather more spread out and uh, I think it's a shame that Londoners haven't discussed the implications of this, especially the way people got their feet blown off and damaged rather than their upper body. Um, that was a, a horrible, persistent oh, thing. We, we must come to that definitely before we finish, of course. However, there's a gentleman, isn't there, um, 
who says that he was on the carriage that exploded and he points to where it exploded. And the problem is, it's not actually next to where the terrorist was alleged to have sat or been. And this is completely extraordinary. And also, if he was where he said he was, and by the way, this witness testimony is really good. He hardly right. hesitates. He's on camera. Uh, I've seen it on the Ripple Effect too. All right. I forget his name now. Lovely gentleman from London, an artist of some kind. He was on his way to an audition. And he shows you where the blast happened. And he explains where the alleged terrorist was. And it's impossible that he wouldn't be dead or seriously maimed if the official narrative was true. And I do apologize. I can't remember the name of the gentleman for the life of me, even though I watched him last night. Um, and he's on camera. He's on camera telling us where this blast occurred. Yeah, well, that is a persistent theme. Like uh, Hassid Hussain was supposed to be on 30 bus, blew up in Thameshot Square, and they put him on the top deck on a particular seat. And the trouble was, a lady sitting right behind him, and sitting behind him, didn't notice him. That's a rather giant fellow with a huge rucksack. And certainly didn't have a huge rucksack blow up right in her face or lose her knees or anything. She's still alive to tell the tale, right? She lives to tell the tale. Yeah, so there's a problem that whatever exploded, maybe it was some exotic technology or something, something a bit more electrical than we like to imagine, but it doesn't ah. seem to go with the story. Let's just say now, that. Electrical is very interesting, is it not? Now, I know this because of your research into the lower limb injuries, which you briefly touched on before on these tube trains and the execution of John Charles de Menzies. Would you like right. to pull that up for people who, who haven't heard this tale told before? Well, how can we just stick to the immediate story of what happened on that day, Sarah? For sure. Yeah, go ahead. Let's I'll, just I'll go bring through that, that back in. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay. So these lads, they come up early in the morning and it's terribly important what happens to them. And why can the government not show any CCTV pictures of these four in London? Where, For clarity, must... we're talking about the alleged Muslim bombers, suicide bombers. We're talking about the four lads from, uh, was it was it four from Leeds and one from Aylesbury? Is that the official narrative? Three from Leeds, Sorry. one from Aylesbury. Yeah. I always said that most... wrong. Three from Aylesbury. Four was It's just like with the 9-11, there were four different targets, right? So you've got four lads and four different targets. And they come down to Leeds, and they come down to Luton. From Leeds to Luton, yes. And somebody turns up in a car parked next to them, which some people think might be Peter Power. It's a Rolls-Royce type car. And they're given Is that the Jaguar on CCTV that's spotted twice on the drill day and on the real day? Is that the one? Sorry, yeah, it is, yeah. You're absolutely wow. right. You can see that on a ripple effect film. It's the same Jaguar, isn't it? And parked in the same place on the fake day and the real, quote-unquote, real day. Yeah. There was yeah, uh, about, about 10 days earlier, there was a drill. Thanks for reminding us. Uh, and, and three of them turned up for the drill and you jack your part next to them. So this is probably sort of handling these three. They were told, they were young lads, they were just taking their exams at college, dead keen on cricket and talking about girlfriends and smoking dope. They had no interest in politics. One and Tan Weir was very religious. And as you said, Mohammed Sili Khan, he, he worked in a friendly way with the police and uh, authorities. Um, he was just a rising star of the neighbourhood. He was trusted by everybody. Uh, and the police sometimes approached him. Uh, that was his sort of d downfall. His mother had been to, I think his mother had been to the Buckingham Palace to see the Queen. So they're a very That's distinguished right. lot. 
Why did the police approach him? I know you know, but the people listening that might not know this, why did they approach Mohammed Sadiq Khan? Why were the police talking to him? Well, I think there's some difficult problem with gangs or whatever, and he would advise them about how to handle it. So he was very good at defusing conflicts. He was proud of his skill in conflict resolution. And he was an assistant to the police, right? He was helping Muslim gangs resolve their differences. It is the official narrative, right? I think that's what he was doing, yeah. And just he also at a school he taught at. He was he was a teaching assistant. For, teaching, a assistant. teaching assistant, yeah. not a teacher, which is important too. Yeah, he's very good with difficult kids and uh is proud of his, his skill in, in sort of with working with empathy with difficult disturbed people. So so therefore he was sort of approached and he told his friends, look, there's a sort of fun opportunity in London now. I had a bit of money and going up to the big city was quite a thrill for them. They didn't do it too often. And they said they enjoyed previous visit. They enjoyed the, was it the aquarium or something? Anyway, they liked the idea of going up to the big city. So he talked them into it. And it's legit money. It's a few extra quid, isn't it? So for people who don't know that the British government, and by the way, governments all over Europe, actually conduct terrorism drills. And they do this to make sure that the ambulance service, the police service, the fire rescue service, um, the, going to miss some people out here, but the security services know how to behave under real pressure. So unfortunately, some of these drills have to now be conducted in public and for real. And there's tons and tons of evidence of this online all over the world. We do have yeah, things yeah. called drills. Now, I actually wrote a play many, many years ago now called The Drill, uh, based oh, on uh, oh, the right. events of 7-7. Really? And it was inspired by Dr. Nick's book. And basically, I'm talking about the powers that be conducting drills. And on the face of it, it's for very legitimate reasons. We want the ambulance staff to be able to triage a large number of people. We want the police to be able to cordon off a large area. We want counterterrorism to hunt down any potential extra threats if a real terrorism event occurred. So on the face of it, having drills is not a bad thing. The problem occurs when they try to sell a drill as real to the public, and even worse, when they kill and maim real people, as I think we both believe is the case here. It seems to me the evidence is overwhelming that people did die and people were maimed by the 7-7 terror on the tube. Would you agree with that, doesn't it? Probably so. Yeah, I mean, later events we get in more recent years, I'll send you so, have axes and dummies and fake blood. And if you have axes and dummies, then you, you don't really have real deaths. You can't really mix the two, not easily. So this was, the original public terror events were absolutely real deaths and blew up. Okay, let's come on to how I came into this story. Yes, please. I, I got to hear that the train times the government gave out were impossible from Luton and, uh, and, and it could not be. And so I went with a friend up, went up one early one morning to the platform and we asked any people there put up a sign saying, if, if you were on the train that morning, please come talk to us. And we also managed to get the train times from the station supervisor. And then I went to King's Cross and Ditto. I managed to get the actual train times that morning from the King's Cross, the computer records. From that, we were able to ascertain that the main train, the 740, which the government said, did not run that morning. It was totally cancelled. Just stop there. Stop there. You're too clever, you're too smart, and you're an absolute genius. I am with you, but only because I've watched dozens and dozens of hours of you, and you're spot on. What we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen, is these four alleged terrorists were supposedly getting this train from Luton 
into King's Cross Station in London. Uh, the teensy-weensy problem was the train they were supposed to have gotten was cancelled. And I won't steal Dr. Nick's thunder because actually he is the man responsible for uncovering this vital piece of information. So go slow from there. They were supposed to get this train. All right. It didn't arrive. Then what happened? Well, all the others were 20 minutes late because of sort of leaves on the line or, or whatever. Two cancellations and one grossly late, right? Two back-to-back cancellations? Well, okay. I, I just remember one. Uh, and uh, the government already not only said the time, but it claimed to have CCTV witness and personal testimony of <laughs> these four being on that 740 train, okay? Yeah. So, oh, whoops, it wasn't there. So that triggered a terrific sort of cascade of debate. Basically, it was the flaw in the perfect crime that had been imagined. And what it meant was that those lads arrived too late. They, they arrived at King's Cross and there was already a hubbub going on in the station and they'd each been given their drill of where they were supposed to go and what they were supposed to do with these backpacks, which probably had, I don't know, packed lunches or whatever in them, and they began to sense something horribly wrong. I've just pulled up your chapter from your book, Chapter 5, The Impossible Journey from 7-7 Terror on the Tube. You're absolutely right. The 740 was cancelled. So the seventh, it was supposed to leave Luton, this train, at 7.40. It was damn well cancelled. The next train left at 7.56. It was due in at 8.20, but didn't get into 8.42 because of the delays. So the only train that these lads could possibly be on was the 8.42, and that is hugely problematic, is it? Problematic, is it not, Dr. Nick? Yeah, if you think of trains going bang about, you know, roughly quarter to nine, or a few minutes later... Shall I read the times out for the people here? I've got them right here. So basically, so here we go. These four Muslim quote-unquote terrorists could not have got to King's Cross on the actual day until 08.42. And the eastbound Circle Line train, number 204, leaves King's Cross at 08.35. Well, if you're going to blow it up, you've got to be down well on it, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't get into King's Cross until 08.42, how are you on the eastbound Circle Line train, number 204, from King's Cross at 08.35? The 0842, the westbound circle line train, number 216, leaves King's Cross. So they couldn't have been on the one that... If their train arrived at 0842 in King's Cross, they couldn't have got on a train for the westbound circle line at 0842. They're in different places. And the final one is 0848, the westbound Piccadilly line train, number 311, leaves King's Cross. Now, if you get in at King's Cross on a, like a, an ordinary train at 0842, God help you get into the platform and on the correct line by 0848 even. That was the latest tube train that you would have had to have been on to blow it up. I've just read them. I, I don't remember that, Dr. Nick. I've just read them from your, your timetables and your book. It used to be quite a walk from the overground yes. King's, uh, King's Cross to go walk through and go to the underground stations was, uh, with a backpack. So in rush hour, maybe you wouldn't do it in five minutes. Interestingly, they totally reconstructed all that and built walls and stuff and redesigned it. So by way of trying to remove the evidence, but the <laughs> unescapable fact was that the whole story, and they'd also put out CC, alleged CCTV pictures they'd released of these Very four good. being yep. on the tube. So that showed these CCTV things were basically fake that they were putting out. Is this the picture of them arriving at Luton where only one of them's real and the other three have been photoshopped in? Is that the one I've seen? Where they arrive at Luton and there's like pieces of leg missing, there's reflections missing, there's beams through heads and arms. Is that the photograph that you're yeah, thinking of? Yeah, that was of? the famous one that they put out. 
uh, and some people feel that is so bad, so obviously photoshopped, that the perps, perpetrators, were trying to signal, like, we don't like having to do this, but uh, here is alleged to be a... Yeah, it was so bad, it was like a signal, like it was bait, it was bait to people like us to go and chase it, wasn't it? It was so bad. Yeah. And what then came out some years later was about Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the kind of central, supposedly ringleader. He'd been in hospital with his wife on the 5th of July. And on the 6th of July, she was frantically signaling to him that she was, gonna, she was pregnant. She got, had birth complications. She was frantically in hospital and having to have this child. And, and the child was just about to come out. She's in pain. And Mohammed then sent a text to his friends saying, sorry, I've got to cancel it. And that was the last thing he ever did. He could not be allowed to pull out and tell the story. So he vanished uh, and he wasn't actually there. Now, uh, sad to say, that must have been the end of him. His wife never saw him again. She was not allowed to give testimony at the inquest. She asked if she could. She wasn't allowed to. Yeah, <laughs> of course not. She knows the truth or some of the truth. Let me just pause you there. You are like a runaway train. Dr. Nick, your knowledge is extraordinary. Your recall of these things is absolutely oh, unbelievable. I've, I've had to swat all weekend. I've had to watch the rewatch the Ripple Effect, the Ripple Effect 2, and reread almost all of your book Good just gracious. to be even halfway keeping up with you. Good and gracious. I'm not stupid, but you have a, a deep knowledge of this and it's very, very evident. So what we're saying here is the alleged ringleader, Mohammed Sadiq Khan or Mohammed Sadiqi Khan, depending on whose pronunciation you believe, this gentleman, he disappeared almost two days before or one and a half days before the alleged terrorist attack because his wife was bleeding. She was heavily pregnant. She started bleeding. And we actually have, I believe, CCTV footage of Mohammed Sadiq or Mohammed Sadiqi Khan and his wife entering the hospital to go and get checked yeah, we out. We, we've yeah, seen we footage of that. And interestingly, it's much more clearly defined footage than that which they showed from Luton Station where the four alleged terrorists caught That's the That's the last image of him. Right, last ever image right. of him, yeah. Absolutely. On the day of 7-7, there's just a couple of genuine bits of CCTV that are released, right? One of them is in a gas station on, driving on the way down that morning. The M1 gas station footage, yes. Yeah. They come in and Tanweer, he goes out, it's quite cheerful, buys a lot of sweets and stuff to eat on the journey and, and fills up with gas. He doesn't look the least bit sort of suicidal, you know? <laughs> Well, when you're about to see Allah, that's what you do, isn't it? You eat a load of junk food. Oh, if you're that's... about to meet your maker, you eat a load of junk crap. You're very happy and swingy. Like, would you not be nervous? If you believe in Allah or believe in God and you're a suicidist on the way to meet your maker, would you not be praying or, or would you not be a bit, would, would you be buying wine gums and, and <laughs> fruit gums? At the, I'm sorry, don't anyway, to be frivolous, but why is, how is that? I finally always see there were two people in that car, not three. The, the inquest tried to Correct. make out there were three people, but they did get a testimony of the guy at the garage who said he saw two people in that car. And, two people were... and the CCTV footage only shows two people also. You can't see a third person. No, you can't really. No, no. So there's two people on the CCTV footage, and the witness says there's two people, not three, which is a problem, isn't it? Yeah, so it fits in with Hamilton Khan not being around. Two of them drive down uh, to the station, where they meet the guy from Aylesbury, Lindsay. Uh, Lin oh yeah, I know him, Jermaine Lindsay. Jermaine Lindsay, yeah, yeah. That's him. So that is one genuine CCTV. And the other one, which only came out of the inquest, and I saw it several years later, because I was at the inquest, 
they played all this absolutely genuine folk film of Hassi Hussain at King's Cross Station, just hanging around, pottering around, around Boots the Chemist. And he's looking a little eating bit Eating a lost. burger in McDonald's. I think so, yeah. E- eating a burger, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because that's what you do before you go to meet your maker on some suicide mission, isn't it? Is that on your bucket list, Dr. Nick? I'll just have a burger at McDo's before I go to meet my maker. Is it on yours? It's not on mine, sir. Well, the official story <laughs> is that I'm now at advantage of, of seeing the real, absolutely real, unadulterated seems to be, and the official story is just so unbelievably mad there that he tried to detonate his bomb, presumably at Kingdross, and it didn't go off because his battery was flat. So he went up to, to Boots the Chemist to buy a new battery so he could successfully blow himself up. And, I mean, that is just so absurd. Anyway, he stays around. Let's just go through what, what happens to him, shall we? The other two have gone off. I'll come back to... We've got a divergence between what actually happened and what is supposed to have happened. What is supposed to have happened is that, is that Hassib was saying then gets the, somehow gets himself to Tavistock Square on the 30 bus. So let's just give these guys the thing. So you've got Mohammed Siddiqui Khan, uh, Shazid Tanweer, and Jermaine Lindsay. They were allegedly the two train bombers. Hassib Hussain was the alleged bus bomber. Just for people, because some of these people, Dr. Nick, have never even seen Ripple Effect. They've never read a single word about this. So, so right now we're talking about this young man who's a gen, quote unquote a gentle giant, described as a gentle giant. He's the guy who allegedly has a rucksack on his back and he's going to blow up uh, a London red bus, which turns out to end up in Tavistock Square. But I won't spoil that. You crack on from there. Thank you. Well, there's a long road, the Maryland Road. Peace Ross is at one end of it. And going westwards, Baker Street, that's where the 30 bus comes from. And it never normally turns off into Tavistock Square. Tavistock was just off the Maryland Road. It had never done that before. This is a unique twist by this bus to turn off the main road into Tavistock Square and there stops just before and just after it turns it, and a lot of people get off. Then it goes a bit further up to the British Medical Association House and it stops and it blows up. So it's an amazing sequence. And the question is, by what possible logic can you get Hassi Bassan onto that bus? Because he's at the other end. He's at King's Cross. So would he... There is a bus he allegedly gets on, the 921 bus. Sorry if it's rather obscure. And that would have turned into Tavistock Square. But it's the wrong bus. So he allegedly gets off that bus and gets, somehow gets on the 30, not knowing that it's going to turn into Tavistock Square. And it's only Tavistock Square. And then the bus driver gets out, just before it blows up, get this, and he asks the way. A bus driver gets out of his bus and asks the way. Okay, he's never been in this room before. And he's then surprised to see his bus blow up. And he's been diverted by the police into that street in the first place. Now, guys, you must be, because we're uh, podcasting here, it's very, very hard to hold all this information into your head. You should go and watch Ripple Effect. Ripple Effect 77 and Ripple Effect 772. I actually recommend you watch the original Ripple Effect first. Yeah, Because if you watch the second one, yeah. version, there's no, way too much information for people who have not got a clue. Watch the original. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up on my channel and I'll put links in the description because with greatest of respect to Muhar Deep, who made the all the Ripple Effect films, the second one is way in depth. Way, you've, got to, you've got to do number one before you do number two. So do the original Ripple Effect and it will show you this bus journey. It's completely freaking mental. This bus journey is impossible if this gen- this young man, Hassi Hussain, was not part of a terror drill. If this young man was not part of some kind of... Pre- 
that bus was never going to Tavistock Square. It was never supposed to go there. And it actually, if he'd waited, he'd have got on a bus that would have taken him there from the same bus stop. So this whole thing is completely crazy. It's but theater. I can't it's explain theatrical. it to you. Absolutely. It's, when, you, when you see it on video, when Muad'Dib does it on his famous Ripple Effect and Ripple Effect 2, you just, you'll just laugh because it's completely ludicrous. Uh, the other problem with Tavistock Square is not just the BMA, the British Medical Association is there, which would be very handy for burns victims, for blood victims, or fake ones, or... Or what? Or crisis? A lot of nurses came out immediately afterwards and started right. doing their stuff. Yeah, but there's another building right next to it, and I can't. I'm going to annoy myself because I can't remember the name of it. There's an Israeli transport and uh, surveillance company that has a building right next door, and interestingly, they have an office only one mile away from Luton Station, where these lads are supposed to got off on uh, the train. Now, I've not researched that hugely, but I do note it. I do know and the, and. We have to uh, measure Verint, don't we? V-E-R-I-N-T. The CCTV company, is it, is, did I say that right? Verint, Verint, Verint? yeah, yeah, Verint? yeah. Thank you. So my dodgy pronunciation, sorry, guys. V-E-R-I-N-T. If you look at this company, they're CCTV experts. They actually have the contracts, not only for the London Tube, but also for the buses. And they're in charge of... You know, when you go through security at the airport to go to the United States, they also happen to be in charge of that too. Now, there's huge problems here because the CCTV allegedly didn't work, did it? We have no footage of him getting on the bus, right? This happens, as Steve I'm saying, the bomber, we can't see the bomber get on the bus, can Absolutely we? Absolutely not, no, no. And there's a whole story about that 30 bus in the bus depot in the days before it came out, that it was being somehow overhauled and most people were seeing seeing service in it and checking it over in a rather strange manner. Nobody quite knew who they were. I remember. You triggered it. Sorry, thank you. I remember exactly what happened, according to the witnesses. Basically, ordinarily, there's a team that come out to service the CCTV on these buses. Um, the normal team takes two to three hours. This team took 23 hours, were not the normal people who came out to service this bus, and were very rude, arrogant, and aloof towards the other uh, persons who worked at this bus stop, so much so that they noted it. And this happened immediately prior to this bus going up. And you have to ask the question, what were they doing? Why did it take 23 hours to do something that usually took two to three? Were they rigging the bus? Were they whatever? I know. I, speculation, of course. The top lifted off very neatly. And it, it looked, there was a straight line where it been some... Of the bus? The yeah, roof of the bus, yeah, do you roof mean? roof of the bus. The roof of the bus, a straight right. line where the bell was right. being cut around. And you could see cut marks where the top came off. So it had all been prepared. Ah, my husband's an engineer. He had a name for that, which I'm too ignorant to remember, where you use a steel cutter to make an absolute straight line in some sort of metal. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, but you can like see that. that on the footage. That if, if you look, Guys, if you look at pictures of buses that have had bombs on them, maybe in Pakistan, in India, the roof usually stays on. The windows get blown out. It's smoked to hell. It's completely trashed. But ordinarily, the roof stays on. But this roof came off, and if you look, is, is it an angle grinder that is the thing that would have made those straight incisions? I'm a bit ignorant. My husband would be going nuts because he knows all this stuff. But basically, it's something very technical that you would have to know what you were doing. And why did it take 23 hours for this team to come and, quote-unquote, fix a CCTV on the number 30 bus that should have taken three hours? And it was all really prepared. For example, around the BMJ yes. main entrance there, we were spattered with blood which is rather sort of spooky, but the entrance wasn't quite right. near enough to where the bus stopped to be credibly resulting from whatever happened in the bus. 
I think there's only about, not many people really died around that bus. And after it lifted off, the roof lifted off, there was a mirror, a picture of a whole lot of people standing up on the top of the bus deck, which rather strange. It looked like they were sort of actors, maybe. Oh, it wasn't clear. They didn't look very badly damaged. Oh, they is well. well, it's very apt, isn't it? Because on the side of the bus, it had a great big bloody advert which said, outright terror, bold and brilliant, which is supposedly advertising some sort of play or film. I think it's a play, maybe a film. It was oh, the, the bloody outside of the bus. It said, outright terror, bold and brilliant. Yeah, and that's then terrific. This, yeah. The top lifts off the bus. And the, that has never happened. If you have a bomb on a bus, the roof doesn't blow off. That's BS. The windows blow out, right? And that Normally. film, The Descent, was Jews ha- open on the film. 8th, right? The day after. Mm. And it had to be postponed because the film was about people being trapped underground and dying. And that was exactly what was then happening. People being trapped underground oh, wow. and dying. So uh, th- there's <laughs> a whole theme here that the empire announces what it's going to do beforehand with, with films are. and media. Do you want to tell them about that Kingstar van? that was parked right next to the bus. Do you remember the Kingstar van, the controlled demolition expert people? Yeah, that was... What do you think about that? Well, it was hovering an awful long time around that bus. It was there before it blew up. So all the pictures, it's on all the the iconic pictures afterwards, isn't it? And it comes from a place outside London, and it talks about safe, controlled demolition, and we can solve your problems with, with demolition. And, of course, they had a story about why they hadn't done it and so on. Um... I, I mean, the, the perps remain very cleverly hidden in these events. Well, those gits, and a part of my course language to a proper professor, but those gits went on a, a BBC conspiracy theories files, whatever crap that is, and they oh, yeah. said that the, the rear doors of their van had been blown in and something had been dented from above. If you analyse the photographs, and I don't mean analyse, I mean look at it for five seconds. If you look at the photographs of five seconds from 7-7 with this bus outside Tavistock and you can see the van this little white van with Kingstar on it, there is no dent in the roof and there is no no damage at all to the rear doors. No, so right, they're right. gaslighting us, aren't they? They're telling us, oh, conspiracy theorists say, well, I know, it. These damages never happened to your van and we can see that on the photographs coming up. Poor, yeah. There were also a couple of police cars following the, 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 the bus, weren't there? It all looked very set up, I must say, the Tavistock Square event. But the important thing is that in all the inquests they have, they... They interview loads of people, right? Uh, and, but they don't want any answers. They want experiences. They, they want the emotion of grief and shock and trauma. And that's what they want in these interviews. And uh, the trouble is they couldn't get anybody to certify having seen this, as you were saying, gentle giant. It just isn't there. Okay, now should we come back to what actually happened, right? Huh. We started with CCTV of him at King's Cross Station, okay? Now he's really, really there. Around about nine o'clock, or maybe ten past nine, uh, and he's evidently not with the others, and he's not quite sure what he's going to do. But he has got a mobile phone to contact the others. And it may be dawning on him that the British Intel will hear everything he says on those phones. Doctor Nick, Doctor Nick, Doctor Nick, I have a stupid question. I'm very sorry, Doctor Nick. I have a very stupid question, and you're going to laugh at this in a minute. Why would a suicide bomber? who's going down to London with his suicide bomber friends, be phoning suicide bombers who'd already committed suicide, sir. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, yeah. Sorry for my terrible question, but I don't understand. If they're ready, uh, if they're ready to <laughs> down themselves in, why would he try and do They should already be dead. They should already be dead, shouldn't they? Yeah. Well, we've got different oh scenarios of the story and the real world. <laughs> uh, 
what happened? And this is, uh, I think it's Richard D. Hall, his intuition. Yes. Well, it might be more dead. Those lads immediately, when they, they twigged that something terrible was happening and they were about to be given blame, it gradually right. dawned on them. Okay, so stop there. We're doing human interest. Sorry, Dr. Nick, you've got all the info, but just let me do the human interest part here. All so right. you've got these lads from London, you've got these lads from Leeds, sorry. They've got into London. They're late. They're supposed to be on these tube trains to uh, do a mock terror drill. They're meant to be playing the parts, the acting roles of terrorists. They've missed their bloody tube trains because the two, not only was one train cancelled, the other, the next one was late as yeah. a minimum that day. They get there and then they see that people are freaking out. There's police everywhere. There's The whole of London is going crazy about some terrorism thing. Yeah, right. They yeah. perhaps twig that there's a huge freaking problem here. That's a human angle, right? Yeah. And Lindsey Graham, he goes up to some guard at the ticket machine. Jermaine Lindsay. Jermaine Lindsay. Jermaine Lindsay? Uh, 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 might be, yeah. Uh, and he says, look, I I've got to speak to the station manager. It's very urgent. Yes. Uh, guys, guys, well, can't you talk to me? Well, can't, no, he says, like, it's really urgent. I've got to talk to you. So he goes off and eventually comes back with the same manager. By that time, Lindsey Graham has fled. Okay, so this guy is dawning on something terrible has happened. He first of all thinks he better tell the social manager, then he thinks better of it, that that might be the last thing he does. This bloody drill has gone live. They were told it was a practice, it was to train people. People are dead, there's blood, there's... Everyone's in a panic, right? They've gone, oh my goodness. So, so what this has do, gone live. They, they rush back to the very platform they just gone off, got, off, got off from, and they hop on the same train line, okay? And then in very few stations, it takes them to Canary Wharf. It's very easy to get to Canary Wharf from there. Oh, my God. No, it's Maybe they thought there were some newspaper reporters or whatever, or somehow they could tell their story or make an escape. Remember, these lads don't really know London at all well. So that they come to Canary Wharf, and they may not have twigged. They immediately use the mobile phone tells people exactly where they are. And then, I think, Hassib was saying later, he comes to join them. He says, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, and they say, look, it's very easy to get to Cam okay, Canary Wharf. Come join us. Now, what the evidence for that is that um, there's a whole lot of re newspaper reports appear by 11 o'clock that security agents shoot terrorists. And I think there's three of them that get shot. Two or three of them. Yeah, but it, but, but importantly, two is in one location and one in the other because one is outside Credit Suisse and one is outside a building that I can't remember the name of that's completely different and that's 467 yards away. So, oh, it's very good, sorry so, about right, that. That's brilliant. No, that's uh, well, I missed the name so. of the other bloody building, so sorry that for that. That is so good. So the that's one so is Credit Suisse and one is the other building, 476 yards away. So we can't say that these guys have been killed at the same event because they are 476 yards away outside two very different looking buildings. One is Credit Suisse. The other one will come to me in a minute. So you crack on. I'll, I'll get that name right, that well, in a minute. So the story is that Hassib saying actually trying to join his mates again uh, and they tell him how to get there and they're somewhere with crowds they think they're safe but actually the security guards come and shoot them and that is the end of those four young lads three young lads and their reports come out that morning which are quickly censored and blocked and there's all reports of people up in one of the tall buildings at canary wharf they're all ordered to move away from the window so they won't see what's going on that was another big story uh news reports are then totally blocked and denied, but they come out in other countries like New Zealand or whatever, 
publish accounts, including this the British security agents or security agents shooting these three young lads and rather shooting three terrorists. That's what they say, the terrorists are shot. There was one English journalist who actually fronted out the main copper in charge of this in London. She said, what do you make of reports that blah, blah, blah has been shot in Canary Wharf? I've witnessed the foot. That's on without deep ripple effect too. Might be on ripple right, effect. Right, one. But I've watched that. So there is actually one journalist who asks, what about these other terrorists, quote unquote, who've been shot at Canary Wharf. And obviously, we would never get an answer to that. But the point is that even the, the, the mainstream journalists then, what I call the fake news media now, they were some, well, one of them dared ask the question. Yeah. Well, um, also, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm sorry, a philosophy lecturer at Sheffield who... Raw, uh, Rich, yeah, Raw, Rid, um, Ridley, Rory Rip, Ridley Duff. Raw, yes, thank you, Rory Ridley Duff. And I've got a copy of that, and I've downloaded it, and I've read it oh, for right. my play. And I will, if it's not available online in the description, I'll put it up online for people to look at. You need to read this, guys. It's a is he a professor or a lecturer? Well, he's not a lecturer. Sure yeah, he's not a lecturer. Thank you, university lecturer. He assessed what he called the truth value of the different narratives, and he reckoned this one from Murdib, whereby uh, had more truth value than the BBC story. The thing was, but the announcement at eleven o'clock in the morning that of terrorist bombers, the announcement uh, had blown up the underground, et cetera, et cetera. They rolled out the official narrative. They could only do that once the, those lads were not around anymore. They knew those four lads had been killed because they killed them, and therefore they could put out their terrorist narrative. So that was a major sort of key event. Well, what while you collect your breath and the other people try and catch up with your absolute genius and you are on this i know that you're a very humble man but you are way too intelligent <laughs> and way too quick for, for us mere mortals please uh, the people that listen to this podcast are really smart people actually and i'm very proud and humbled by that you sir you've got to like take a breath and go slow with us because That's we yeah, are yeah. many many of us are listening to this for the very first time now i know i'm a bit contrived because i've read the books and i've watched the movies and I, like i even so, this is a really interesting... So the Canary Wharf Executions and Muad'Dib story is page 91 in your epic book. And it is an epic book, by the way. I don't <laughs> well, say thanks, this yeah. to everybody. Well, you can listen to all, the, all my podcasts back. I don't say so. But this is just absolutely genius. Oh, well, thanks, um, so, yeah. So, it's all, look at that. It's already highlighted. How sad am I? Um, I've, not refer, I've not referred to that chapter for ages. But anyway, it's completely crazy that you've got this... There's not just one shooting on Canary Wharf. There are two, at least two distinct shootings of quote unquote alleged terrorists on Canary Wharf. This isn't one accidental, one made up situation. There are at least two of these things happening on the same day. And we've got credible witnesses. And the problem the, the establishment's book version of events, not book, but the establishment have got is that these two buildings are completely different and 467 yards apart. I'm still flailing for the, the name of the second building. One of them was the Credit Swiss building. Now, interestingly enough, a lot there are eyewitness testimonies of people who were in those buildings on Canary Wharf. Why were the people on Canary Wharf told to not leave the building and to get away from the windows? Given there's bombings on the tube and a, a bus blowing up, why would people, just on like a human level, not I'm not talking technical level here, but on a human level, why would you as my boss, Nick, tell me to get away from the windows on Canary Wharf? Well, What could that possibly be about? Yeah, what could that happened, possibly be? The first thing I knew about it was the phone wasn't working. My phone wasn't working that morning. Right. And uh, I was with a whole lot of people strolling around the streets of London. Uh, and 
having the phones go down, different accounts of when the phones went down, well, that was a major part of the strange experience. And quite what also came out at the inquest was that a whole lot of the electricity of East London Line went down at pretty well the exact moment where those trains blew up, can't you, blew, blew up. There was electrical failures over, over quite a lot of the place. So something big had been prearranged. It was a bit like the film V for Vendetta. I don't know if any of you saw that. They've all seen that one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. We've all watched that one. All <laughs> oh, right. Well, would the government kill its own citizens? That's the kind of central theme. <laughs> and you saw you saw a London tube train totally primed to blow up with explosives on it. And that was filmed by, was it Disney or whoever, in the months before the London bombings, right? 2005, early on it was filmed. So there would have been American agents, let's say, wandering around the underground, underground stations of London to do this film. Yeah, they needed like a disuse one, didn't they? Because... It, without being a spoiler alert, because everyone must have seen this by now, there's a huge like uh, tube explosion scene in an underground setting in London in v for, the movie V for Vendetta. So they were looking for a disused underground station. Uh, they found one, but something really awful happened during filming, uh, didn't it, Doctor Nick? Aha! Uh -huh. Well, I won't spoil it, but the film was due <laughs> to come out later that year, and it was postponed because it was too similar to what actually happened. And somebody died during the filming of it, inexplicably, in that location. Oh right! Oh, so okay. you, that might be extra. That might be extra to to what you know about it. But there was a dodgy. There was a dodgy death during. Well, when it you was. watched the film, it. Well, it when you watched the film, was it a photographer died? Aha! You knew it. I knew you knew it. I knew you knew it. Yes, exactly. Photographer. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, right, right. that was put off as well. This is a, a, a major central theme of subcontinent in the twenty first century that the empire tells you in advance what's going to happen or signals. Uh, you get it in the media before. And why do they do that, Dr. Nick? Tell us about karma. Why do, why do they do that? Well, I'm not really into karma, Sarah. But, uh, it's a bit no, because you're actually normal, respectable, and actually have real degrees and real subjects. But if you're a cracker weirdo like these people are, what would they say about karma, Dr. Nick? Well, the idea that they it's their, it clears out their karma if they tell you in advance and what's going to happen, that then... They've warned you, and they're not guilty. Something like that. It's your fault because you didn't you didn't heed the warning, right? Yeah, that's what my good friend Oli Zemmergaard always says about that. He's been told about the, the, the karma of these oh, things. You shameless name dropper! Oh, I love Oli Zemmergaard. Oh my goodness, oh. he's one of the legends on False Flag Terror, isn't he? What a researcher! Is, yeah. Oh, you Absolutely, shameless yeah. name dropper. Respect. By the way, I found the name of that building. So we had the Credit Suisse, where some of these alleged Suicide. Number one, why would a suicide bomber need to be shot? But bear, bearing that in mind, so some suicide bombers were some suicide bombers, guys, wakey wakey. Some suicide bombers were shot by anti quote counter terror <laughs> outside Credit Swiss. The other building was the HSBC Tower. That's so right. The yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Sorry, it took me ages. Page 92. HSB, HSBC Tower at Canary Wharf versus the Credit Swiss. They are 467 yards apart, according to Google Maps, Google Earth, whatever. So there's no, and, and the two buildings are very different. If you, if you pull up a picture of the HSBC Tower and the Credit Suisse, they look really different. Even an idiot like me is not going to mistake them. They don't look like, you know, the local, the local MACDs. All that really matters is that it's very easy to get to this location. People who hardly know London at all, just by jumping back on the train they came from 
and it's just a, a few stops. And they've already got credible tickets because they've got return tickets, didn't they? Dr. Nick, Oh yeah, that's I a have point. a stupid question, sir. Yeah. I have a stupid question, Professor. If I'm a suicide bubble, Dr. Nick, why do I need a return ticket, sir? Well, you might just back out at the last minute. You never know. <laughs> Hedging my bets. Hedging my bets. <laughs> but that is a point, actually, that there was something about a return ticket on, was it in the car park in, in, in Luton? Oh, yes, sir. They've got, they have return tickets. Absolutely. Let's move on. I think it's time to move on in our narrative. Go for we it. We started off with real experts saying, this explosive looks like C4 that was planted that blew it up. Stop there. Tell people what C4 is. I know you know, but your history of science expert, just it's tell a us about that. explosive. Amazing NATO labs that has pure blast and no heat or light. It features in all sorts of movies. And the point is you can't make it at home. Okay. So, so that's the initial narrative. And then about a week later, they start to finger these people in Leeds. They start to say, oh, we somehow know that it was the, them. They're too good at cricket. We've got to often... <laughs> They're going to get rid of these Leeds people. Yeah. So Very... they don't have a problem. What could they have made? And so it moves to become something called TATP, which is something you have to keep in the fridge. You have to keep cold and... It will blow up, it goes bang, and all you need to make TATP is concentrated sulfuric acid, high, high density hydrogen peroxide, about 70%, and acetone. And any hydrogen peroxide you get for your hair bleach oil will be about uh, most 10% or maybe 12%, okay? Uh, and there's no way you can concentrate that without having a chemical laboratory and a fractional distillation apparatus. So the idea that I can get my, you know, my hairdresser's bleach and chuck it in my bath and condense it down to make TATP is basically bollocks. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's totally nonsense, totally nonsensical. Now, that's very interesting, and I'm going to stop you there because you are like a, you're like the runaway train, and it's amazing, but thank you. I just wanted to tie in here the Manchester Bang by Richard D. Hall, the knight of the Manchester Bang, because this TATP crap, you're boiling chemicals or you're condensing chemicals in your sister's bath or whatever. That's what they said made the, the explosive at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Now, poor Richard D. Hall is the subject of some vexatious litigation from these bastards. I think it was 2017. But this TATP crap is the same crap that they said was part of the London bombings and part of the Manchester bombings, but actually it cannot possibly be so because we have actual experts, do we not, witnesses that said that C4, military-grade explosives, were actually used. Did we not have um, experts at Edgware Road tell us that? Well, a French expert, I believe I saw that. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure it had proof, proof of it, but I'm not convinced what was any explosives. It might, it might have been, but... Uh, Anyway, just coming back to this important analogy you made with Manchester, if I may, they're also claiming that shrap shrapnel is contained in the, in the bomb that went off at Manchester, and that is simply because it, it horrifies people. The idea of a shrapnel blowing off and... The old, IR, the old MO of the IR, alleged IRA bombs, right? The old shrapnel bombs, the old nuts and bolts crap. I mentioned in the Madrid event of 2004, they claimed it was shrapnel bombs, and then the people at the hospital were emphatic that... They had no wounds from shrapnel in any of the people that they were treating. So it's just something put in to horrify people. And that also appeared at, at Lucid Car Park. There's a whole story about cars being left behind in the Lucid Car Park, right? 
And they had, if you're absolutely reason, various bottles of bombing material left in them with shrapnel or various evil-looking constructed bombs. I think with TATB, I can't remember. But they had shrapnel in them. This is sort of thing that I think the CIA put in a lot of this detail. I think the British police were quite miffed at the CIA coming out with these reports and stuff. For example, they mocked up a whole house, in whole room in Leeds where allegedly there was a bath with stuff being made and a fridge and that. That eventually became part of the story, okay? Yes, Professor Nick, I have a problem. It's a silly question again, but if there's this TATP and I'm going to go and blow up a tube, would I want to put it in a rucksack and jump up and down with it? Would it, would it, how volatile is this stuff? Like, am I, if I go run for a bus or run to get to the, the platform, is there a danger it might go off or not? You wouldn't want to do that, no. Ah, I thought you might say that. Suppose to have a lot of ice to cool it down, which right. gets more and more complicated, ha- having a lot of ice. So basically it's heat, it's heat sensitive. In layman's terms, it's heat sensitive and you don't want to piss it off. You don't want to agitate it. You don't want to shake it up and down, right? Also, it sort of evaporates and it doesn't keep very well, yeah. Anyway, goodness. after various comments about how they couldn't possibly have these ingredients, that the final version <laughs> came out of the Kingston trial of what the explosive was. It was, wait for it, it was hydrogen peroxide and black pepper. And that was the final version of the explosive used. What's this Kingston trial, just for people who don't know what that is? What's right. this Kingston trial? Is that an inquest or a, what is that? I think it was three years later. They found several, three young okay. lads who had the misfortune to have been good friends of the four oh, uh, four These are the ones Muad'Dib tried to save. These are the ones he went to prison for. Sorry, yes, I'm with you. I apologise. I know the Kingston trial. Yes, right. yes. Yeah. And they couldn't pin anything on them at all, really. They were the friends of, of, of three slash four lads who didn't do anything. Yeah, the friends. Right. So that Kingston trial was... I was going there quite a bit, and I was being interviewed by the BBC quite intensively for that trial, and then they did a sort of... I bet. That they then damn, ethically damned me uh, and denounced me at the end. So, well, I'm glad because that's how most people have found you. So that was wonderful. There's no bad, bad publicity, Doctor Nick. There's only publicity. Good for you. Oh, pretty bad. Good for you. Uh, everyone warned yeah, me that they, was what they were going to do. Sure, but do you know what happens these days when people are condemned by the BBC? Real people go, "Oh, goody, who's this person?" If they're condemned by the BBC, they're people for me. That's what people do now. I know this is very modern, but that's what we do now. We go, oh, this man is condemned by the lying scumbag BBC, BBC yeah. Lies 24. Oh, goody, goody, who's this man? Very, very impressive. So just tell me, I want to go to this MP who stood up in Parliament regarding the train timetable oh, yeah, right. lies. Yeah. Just lay out for people the train timetable, the lies, and what you, it was you personally who discovered this, wasn't it? Well, me, yeah, some other guy. It was the Home Secretary. Is it Reed or somebody? A year it was later. Reed. Yes. John Reed? The, John Reed, yeah. If they finally admitted there was no such some border train, therefore their reconstructions could not be valid. So just stop there, stop there. Too clever, too good, just too smart. Let's just let us all catch up, including me. So basically, this the MI5, whatever, the police and everything had conducted a full and thorough investigation into the events of 7 7. They had concluded that these Muslim terrorists had caught a train that never bloody ran that day. And you know who found it out? It was Dr. Nick Collistrom and friends. Here's the guy who went, you, you went there. He went to the train station and asked, please can I have, they thought he was a train spotter. 
They thought he was a train spotter and they gave oh, him right. the information willingly. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, get, they handed over the information. This is the best information ever. This is the, the one of the few times that the people, albeit a very clever the person, <laughs> Dr. Nick, has actually got the real information off the establishment and proved them to be the lying liars of life. They <laughs> handed over to you the information. Well, it's true. You're a hero, man. You're a cult hero for this because you realized you got the information that those, number one, the train they set, the train that the official report said these Muslim terrorists caught never went ahead. It was cancelled. And even better, the one that came after it was delayed. Is that all right, Dr. Nick? Yeah, that's, that's so, yeah, yeah. So, the perfect crime was undermined in two ways. Firstly, by what you said about the train, and secondly, by Mohammed Siddiq Khan, his wife going into labour, and he had to pull out. I think those are the two reasons why they could not show the CCTV in London. They had loads of CCTV. Why couldn't they show it? They couldn't show it because the lads were there too late, and there was only three of them, not four. And it was only three years later, the kids died, they finally managed to fudge the fudge the film sufficiently to put out put out CCTV. For example, the the image you mentioned at Luton Station, right, the station entrance, which we're saying how bad it looked. They put out succession of CCTV, make it look like a movie image. Don't they come out every two seconds and so on CCTV, uh, uh, and they, they managed to construct a sequence of that, make it look as if it was people lads really going into that platform. Now, it's three years later, and I would say that's too late. If they can only release CCTV three years later, that looked like it might be genuine. But also, that's after people had analysed the still images that they released immediately. The still images are complete gaga. Even I can see the photoshops, and I, I'm a computer retard. Even I can see that they're dodgy. And you, you've been involved in some videos regarding the dodginess of those, or the veracity or otherwise of those images and you can see that on the ripple effects and ripple effect so it's complete nonsense there's no way even I, you just look at them just look you don't have to have any specialisms do you to see that they are completely fabricated images and then you have to say well why are you fabricating images exactly yeah i let's say sarah a cast iron proof of say fabric terror is the absence of cctv that when the event goes down oh whoops the cctv isn't available and you get that pretty well all the time uh, and it shows you some deep central degree of organizing and there's the same company involved isn't there there's a company that keeps popping up with these yeah it does tend to Verint. be yeah. v i'm gonna uh, i probably pronounced it wrong so v e r i n z guys go and look up Verint or Verint security systems these guys provide security so-called security cctv on buses on trains Every time there's a massive big one goes down, 9-11, Princess Di, this stuff doesn't work. If I throw a... I'm glad you mentioned that, Princess Di. I think that was the earliest one you noticed. She drove to Paris, the last journey, and the CCTV is off. Uh, I think that's the earliest one that one noticed. In the whole of Paris? Are you kidding me? Dr. Nick, there's huge amounts of CCTV in Paris. Come on. How is it all broken on the same day at the same time? And how does it not work in 7-7 on the buses or the trams? And how does it not work at the airports on 9-11? Because the airports on 9-11 also have this same tech, behind bloody systems, right? Almost, almost enough to turn you into conspiracy theorist, Sarah. Cool. Well, do you know what, Dr. Nick? I'd much rather be called a conspiracy theorist than a coincidence theorist at this stage. As a mathematician, as a mathematician, 
I'd be very ashamed to be, be a coincidence theorist, right? Because in fact, you're very good at numbers. Let's talk about the probability of Peter Power's drill having the same tube stations on the same day at the same time in the same 10-year period. Like what, mathematically speaking, I, I know the answer, but what is what are the chances that some guy, oh yes, I'm running a drill and all my people who want to learn about the drill, it's at these stations. Oh my goodness, real terrorists at these stations on the same day. Ah, oh, come on. Is that not Punch and Judy? Yeah, it's one in a million or one in a billion or something. And that's not it's even crazy including, numbers. That's not even including the Panorama program a few months earlier, which gave a dry run of exactly what was going to happen right. with a piece of power there. So the idea of resilience and preparing for a terror event, you've got that on 9-11, where the whole lot of drills and, and people were watching their screens in Spain saying, is this a drill or is it live, you know? We've, we've got them on the audio, Dr. Nick, saying, uh, sir, is this real world or is this a drill? Is this a drill or is this real world, sir? So we've got the audio tapes of some guy in the operating room, possibly, what do you call it now? The air traffic control people. Oh, sorry, sorry, we've got yeah. him asking, is this real world or is it a drill, sir? So he doesn't know. He obviously doesn't know. And Right. Well, well, this has entered the vernacular, the concept. Is this a drill or is it really happening, you know? The title of my play, The Drill. Oh, was it? Yeah, oh, right. right. <laughs> the Drill. <laughs> well, come on, Sarah. What's happened to this play? We want to see it. Oh, it's dead. They'll, oh, that will never get produced. Oh, no. No matter if it's any good or crap at all. No, no, you're not allowed to produce stuff like that, Dr. Nick. Good heavens. No, you must know that from some of your books. Well, some of your books on. are suppressed because no, you tell the truth. Well, we'll do some work. We'll talk off air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. But there's real problems because an awful lot of uh, actors and, and directors are left hards. And I don't mean to be nasty, but they're the commies that you were talking about at the very beginning uh, that were dangerous to humanity. Well, these commies are now in charge of everything. You call them what you want. You can call them neocoms, commies, uh, whatever you want to call them. They're enemies of peop of the real people. So my play's dead. But anyway, it was based on your book. So people just read the book. It's a lot better. Hey, you can just read the book, Terror on the Tube, Behind the Veil of 7-7, an investigation by Dr. Nick Collistrum. I'll put it in the a link in the description for sure, for sure. But I have a couple of, I have a couple of questions, if, if I may. Right. So after the so-called attack and uh, yeah, this happened or that happened, have you got, do you know stuff about the widow of Mohammed Sadiq Khan or Mohammed Khan? Have you got some intel on, on her behaviour? Because it was quite interesting, wasn't it? We tried so hard to reach her, Ben Patel. It would have been so good if we could have got her testimony. That was would have been all important, you know. Because she came out at the start, she came out at the start in the tabloids, not the proper, like, broadsheet. Tab the tabloids yeah. saying, yeah. my husband's a terrorist, you prove it. Like, she went for it. She was well against the idea that her husband had, had, had done this at all. So how come, like, like what happened? How, how come we didn't get the truth out of her? What happened, do you think? I, I know it's speculation, All I but... can say is, it was like, there was a glass plate with us lot, the investigators, and all these people at the, the security services want to keep from you, like most of the families. We, we couldn't get to speak to them, what, what it was that they experienced, or all survivors. There's a whole lot of people we just couldn't get to speak to. And, uh, I mean, I did manage to talk to a brother of Amasidi Khan that was enormously valuable for me. I think I put it in the book about the family and what happened. I, I think that, um, that was the one breakthrough I managed to do in, in the beastly area of Leeds. But she was 
this widow was, I think she turned off to Sheffield and um, you just couldn't get through any, any, find any, any way of finding. And she got married, but changed her name. And so she just got lost on it, right? Yeah. Well, if we ever get this wretched play on, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's not my best. But if we ever get this wretched play on, it'll be in Beeston. It'll be in Beeston and Leeds. We'll find some honest actors, some decent people and get it up there. But it's basically just the physical embodiment or a two-hour physical embodiment of your book and the research that I saw on the ripple effects and the ripple effect too. Because what you've written and what the ripple effects have produced is absolutely extraordinary. Just talk to me about the curiosities surrounding the busts. There's some big problems with this bus bombing. And there was a guy, wasn't there, going around. I can't remember his name. It was a very common name. A guy from Binfield, Andrew something or other, going around telling all kinds of different stories that change depending on who the media are. Don't worry about his name, Andrew. It's something common. What was his game? What, like, what, he, by the way, he had worked it, previously worked at Explosive, suddenly. Yeah. Just, just to let you know. Well, it was extremely strange whatever did happen. And it was all pre-planned and theatrical. So much so that, in a way, we can never hope to get an answer to what happened. Whatever the technology was used, I think it was what you might call it exotic technology uh, that, that we can't easily figure out. There was a bit of puff of blue smoke, the top lifts off, and I only counted two or three dead people. And that is exactly what the bus driver said. He said, indicated there were two or three dead people. And I think they wanted, it was like a pack of cards. 13. 13, 52 dead, four packs of 13. Well, there was that sicko Olympic Games handover. And I know people don't like this stuff, but oh, yeah, and yeah. you won't either because you're a proper professor. That's you're a very good analogy. Yeah, to tell us. But yeah. there was some disgusting so called theatrical performance on 8808. 8808. Yeah. 8808. Beijing, yeah. The Beijing Olympics in 2008 were handing over the Olympics to London in 2012, four years later, right, the, next, yeah, the yeah. next Olympiad. And as part of the ceremony, they had this red London bus, red London bus in Beijing. The top blew off of it. And when, it, when the sides came down from the explo explosion, there were 13 sicko umbrellas. Yeah, 13 umbrellas, yeah representing the 13 people that died in these London bomb it, it, so not in the London bombings in total on the bus on that bus that that was supposed to have been blown up by one young Muslim who was having McDonald's beef burgers before he went to meet his maker which is completely retarded if you ask me and I know that's not evidence but it's pretty sick stuff and if you combine that with all of the other evidence that you get from look at the 2012 opening ceremony I was in Turkey. I'd uh, done a really hard year of teaching. I was exhausted. I went out to Turkey for a yeah. couple of weeks with my husband, just for a holiday. Yeah. I was exhausted, beyond exhausted. Anyway, my husband didn't want to watch the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. He wasn't that bothered about sport, but I love sport. I'm a sportswoman, and I was deeply involved in it. So he said, I'll meet you back at the hotel. You crack on. So I sat in this bar watching it until the early hours. And I was watching all of this shit, and I was like, what is I didn't get it. And I, I'm actually, um, I'm not just maths. I'm sort of, an arts graduate as well. Like I have both sides. I write plays, so I, I'm, I'm English, but I'm also maths. So I do the two things. And I'm watching this stuff, and I'm what crap is this? And I'm watching it, and I have this uncomfortable feeling, like, what dark, sicko crap is this? And I wasn't that awake. I was awakening. I, I was aware of you, and I was aware of something. But I wasn't, I, I was low-level awake at that point. Uh, uh, where is and this it, happening? It, it troubled me. Well, this is the Olympic opening ceremony. 
yeah, the 2012 game. I mean, and Turkey because I'm on holiday because I'm knackered and I'm a hardworking teacher and I've taken the first week of term off, first week of holidays off, whatever, two weeks to Turkey. And I'm watching this opening ceremony thinking, this is sick. And you've got a bunch of nurses. If you go back and look now, you've got a bunch of NHS nurses from the Great Ormond Street Hospital, G-O-S-H, Great Ormond Street Hospital, dancing around, doing weird dances in these hospital beds. And then you've got Boris Johnson, who's blown up to be this huge beast. And at the time, he was only London mayor. He wasn't prime minister. He was only the mayor of London. He wasn't prime minister or PM. And you've got him there. And then you've got Voldemort zapping small children in these hospital beds and all of this weird dancing by the NHS staff. Well, what happened during COVID-1984? You had hospital, you had loads of images and video footage of nurses doing dances. Now, I don't mean to be funny, but I, I know lots of men and women who've been to conflict zones as soldiers, naval officers, sailors, seamen, Air Force employees, right? When you're at a war zone, you, you sleep whenever and wherever you can. You sleep. If you're knackered, if you're under stress, you sleep. You don't learn stupid dances. And yet these dances were all over TikTok, all over social media, and these people were on the front line fighting the war against COVID-1984. And yet they're doing dances. Now, there is no precedence for that. You, you watch the women who've been to Iraq and Afghanistan, these female soldiers, they're exhausted. You, you've got this, there's photographs of them asleep against the wheels of hum, like huge... I'm not going to like embarrass myself by pretending to claim I know what these vehicles are called. They are huge vehicles, armoured vehicles. And these women are sat, are so tired, they're asleep against the wheels of them because they're taking an extra nap when they can. That's what people on the front line do. They don't make TikTok dances, do they? No, no, no. Sarah, should we just come back to try and wrap, round up our story? But, um, yes, please. The London bombings were part of a whole sequence whereby Europe was given this new enemy image. It stuns you, it tells you who to hate and fear, and also destroys your trust in your fellow men. That, oh, just keep an eye on anybody, it could be a terrorist, you know. So after that, what happened after the London bombing? Well, the immediate thing after was Heathrow Airport. It was a big, what I call, phantom terror. Phantom terror is where nothing actually happens, but everything's just suspected. And the American Puzzle Palace computer it claimed that there was a plan to blow up planes in the mid-Atlantic using what are called binary munitions, which are two different harmless things, and when you put them together, they make an explosive, okay? Uh, and a whole lot of people were arrested. Muslims were arrested in this country, and it was suddenly alleged during Tony Blair's government that there was this terrific plan that, fortunately, the British police managed to detect just in time uh, and stop a whole lot of people getting on planes and blowing them up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and this cost hundreds of millions of pounds of plane delays and, and everything. Uh, and that's why you can't take milk. You couldn't take milk with you or, or on a plane or uh, all sorts of stuff you couldn't take with because of this thing, this terror, this accusation. And nothing had actually happened. Nobody got any bombs. These people arrested were... I mean, they couldn't really prove their innocence because nothing had happened. So that was in the wake of the real terror event. It could be manufactured and dreamed up. There were several such incidents. And I would argue fabricated terror events on various European countries. And I've done a book called False Flags Over Europe, which reviews these. And astonishingly, the, these big spectacular events came to a climax and finale in 2017. Okay. 
we had two big events in London, one in London, one in Manchester, alleging Islamic terrorists. One was on Westminster Bridge, and the other was in the Manchester Arena that you mentioned Richard done very Richard did all done in-depth research on. So those appear as a kind of culmination of this tremendous sequence which begins with our eleven and it gives the whole world a new enemy image, the image of Islamic terror. In my opinion, Muslims never do very much to defend themselves. That's why it all works so well. That they're also rather quiet uh, and they don't really protest very much. Individually they may not believe the story, but collectively they don't do anything. So the whole Islamic terror event culminates and finishes 2017, and then abruptly, suddenly, well, you all know what happens next, it switches over to Russia, okay? Let's all hang fear Russia, and we then get Russia, which I would argue, I don't want to be too sort of shocking or whatever, but I would argue that the Scripple narrative, for example, with Novichok was a British Intel-constructed event. Well, I perhaps better not go into details, but events constructed to blame Russia and to make Russia feared, which the British people had not felt at all. Polls show that British people did Well, you think you're offensive. Check me out. But when their 2020 COVID-1984 kicked off, I tweeted, who furloughed ISIS? Who furloughed ISIS? Because I tell you what, Dr. Zegg, whilst we had who furloughed ISIS, so ISIS were a terrorist threat, Muslim terror, fear, 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 fear. We get the flu. We get the flu in 2020. And where did they go? Where the hell did they go? They, exactly, it's not yeah, if, you're gonna, if you're going to attack your enemy, you attack the one that on the we, We're dying. We've got the plague. Why did they blow us up then? Why did they attack us then? Oh, well, so, sorry, who followed them? Yeah, so suddenly I was they're very, gone. I was very offensive. Suddenly, Muslim terror have gone. You wonder, well, where's it all gone to? It's just like a change of scene, isn't it? We're given a different narrative. So I urge British people to wake up and realise that the government is giving you fear as a, as a sort of drug to stop you doing anything important, try to stop you doing anything important with your life, that you spend your life with hate and fear you get from the media, and hate and fear is illusory. And the only thing you need to fear, as the film B for Vent had to point out, is what your own government is up to. Spot on. And this is why they need children in the state indoctrination centres, isn't it? They, they don't, I tell you what, they don't teach about 7-7 or false flag terrorism in those, I'll tell you that for free. This is why I'm very passionate about getting the children out of these, in the, what people call schools. They're not schools, they're not, they're, if I could show you, and I will off there, the so-called education of our young people, these examinations at 16, it's absolutely abysmal. Like, Dr. Nick, like children who can't do 16 times 3, children who can't use a capital letter to start a sentence in a full stop. And I'm talking about higher tier candidates. We're talking about the top third of the country, the creme de la creme. I work, I work for the most famous and the most successful academic uh, exam board in mathematics in the country. All and right. it's absolutely shocking, abysmal. You would, you would have a fit. If I showed you, I would fear for your health what I have had to mark this summer and, and last summer and all and the previous 10 summers. It's a complete disgrace. They do not want you thinking. They do not want you asking questions. And that's exactly why Governor Ed is here. Because we want you to ask questions, we want you to do your own research, and we want you... Like, Dr. Nick has asked some amazing questions. Like, given the, the train was cancelled, how did these bombers get to London again? Just tell people uh, what happened in the Houses of Parliament after you'd put this bombshell out in the public domain. So, did you say, well, are we off here now, is it? Uh... No, keep going. Uh, you're, oh, you're, right. You were talking right now about when 
John Reed or, or MP Reed had to uh, make pitiful excuses about yeah. the different train time because you'd prove they couldn't have got on it because it was cancelled. So in the house, so we're not talking conspiracy theory here. We're talking the houses of parliament. A par- an MP had to stand up and say, "Oh yes, well, all of our extensive investigations were incorrect." And Dr. Nick Cotwell well, didn't mention your name, but they said, "Oh, the train time was this, not that," which wouldn't have worked anyway. But they had the point is they had to refute their own professional investigation into seven seven. Yeah, did they not? After they put out an official report, and yeah, I mean they didn't follow it through at all. There's absolutely no evidence. Look, there is somewhere a boffin who knows what's happened or has got it all figured out. I mean, they are a lot more confused than, than, than we are, you know. They're, they're given, whoever sees this story, I, I suspect that the initial operators are American or Israeli, who, as it were, make the bombs go off. And the British, they're my father, they're more like, they have to follow through with the consequences. You see, one state fabricated terror has been, once you commit yourself to that, the whole state, credibility of the state is risked. The, the state would fall apart, in my opinion, if the truth came out that these echelons of, of BBC, of the Metropolitan Police, of British government have collaborated and colluded in this fabricated terror event. So everything is risked when, when, the, when the state does this and uh, it, it can't afford to go back on it. And a simple university professor who happens to be very smart went to the train station and just asked for the train times from Luton to, to King's Cross. And the lady at the counter assumed he was a train spotter and bloody gave them to him. And that's why some MP had to stand up in the Houses of Parliament and correct the official record. So, guys, when they did the, when they did the investigation into 7 7, you've got the best of counterterrorism, the best of MI5, you've got all these people working on it. They made their report and they said the train time was this. Well, Dr. Nick and his train spotting friends went to the train station and found out while that train was cancelled that day. And not only was it cancelled, the one after it was late. And that caused a member of the British Parliament to stand up in Parliament and to correct the official record. Now, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why some MP? Why some MP getting in on the most important investigation in British history? This was our 9-11. This was our 9-11. And and nobody realised the train was damn cancelled. Like, that's not just, can't be true, can it? Like, if you and me were in charge of of, of sorting out the investigation, we'd have checked the train time. Well, you did, didn't you? That's the first thing you did. Like, like, you've got to check that these things are correct. something unexpected. Mo Dib said it was the hand of God in his uh, video. The thing was cancelled. It was just out of the blue. I I don't think they'd reckon on that. Brilliant. You know? It's just brilliant. It was just brilliant. Well, if I come to the idea of who's doing it, right? So, Israeli-American agents, let's be aware that two people who were just having breakfast when it went off, there's Benjamin Netanyahu, okay? And some people think he was a mastermind of 9-11, dare I ask, dare I say. He was at a hotel in Liverpool Street, and there was the, the mayor of New York, uh, Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, who had an absolutely central role in 9-11. He, he stopped, the fire, stopped the firemen from was in trouble and helped all the remains to be shipped away, shipped off to China so nobody could investigate it. He had a very central role in 9-11. And he was at the Liverpool Street. He was likewise at Liverpool Street Station. I mean, those guys might have pressed the buttons, you know, but uh, they, they're ostensibly there for an economics conference. 
that was, I think it was cancelled that day. It was scheduled for that morning. Netanyahu was told not to leave his hotel, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So if he's told not to leave his hotel, how come all these people died on the tubes of the train? Why wasn't the British public told to stay home and not to leave the hotel, not to leave the house, eh? Well, may you ask, yeah. He then asked who, who warned him, okay? And I think he said, might have been Scotland Yard, and Scotland Yard, no. It was basically a Mossad-type Mossad, warning. head of Mossad. Head of Mossad, yeah. Halevi. So he got a warning. Partly, basically, let's see how you wanted to draw attention to himself. He didn't just want to be quietly there. He wanted the whole world to know that he was there because that's what he's like. So he made that announcement that he was going to go and he'd been told to stay at home five minutes before. So the obvious question arises, if they had five minutes warning, why didn't they tell anybody? Why was he the only person told? So, yeah, that's a good point. Perhaps we could mention Halevi. He's a very crucial, this is getting to the danger zone now of... Anyone who knew in advance that it was going to happen, there's a high indication that they are responsible for it, or they know who's responsible for it. So Halevi writes this article, which appears in the Jerusalem Post, I think a couple of hours after the bomb's gone off. And it's it's titled Rules for Conducting a Third World War, and it's a deeply meditated piece about how a conflict is going on with Israel versus Islamic nations. It's raging in various different countries in the world. And that's the overall theme. And then he says that the London bombing, he says it's very professionally done. He evaluates how it was all done, which you couldn't possibly have known in such a short time. And he also said the bombs were, bombing was synchronous. Now, that didn't come out until several days after. In fact, that How did you know? Yeah. I ask stupid questions, Dr. Nick. It's my specialism. I ask stupid questions all the time. Right. Dr. Nick, Dr. Nick, how did he know? How did he know? <laughs> well, Halevi knew far too much, okay? Halevi was head of a security firm at the time, wasn't he? Oh, he, yes. He would have been involved in the same sort of area as Peter Power was, Halevi. And this article also had a comment about yesterday's bombings showed dot, dot, dot. Now, indicating that it had been written and was intending to go into the paper the next day. That, that's the sort of way it, what it indicated. But wham, it was whacked up onto the website of the Jerusalem Post a couple of hours after the event. I think that Israeli Mossad always like to show that they've got foreknowledge of these events to show how clever they are, but they don't want to go too far, which might make people suspect they've actually done it. Um, <laughs> so, so that is a, a key, the, the Halabi thing is a key indication of somebody who knew too much. Yeah. Yeah, spot on. Well, I want to know why Netanyahu didn't leave his hotel on that morning because he was, and he was he said he was told not to. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Why wasn't I told not to leave my university, my home, my coffee shop? Absolutely disgusting. Dr. Nick, unbelievable. We've been on a, a rip-roaring journey there into 7-7 and all, all the things around it. Thank you so much for your intelligence, your candor, and for bearing with me while I stop you and re-explain things because we've got to keep up with you. Thank you so much for your patience. Dr. Nick Colstrom can be found at terrorontheTube.co.uk. That's terrorontheTube.co.uk. But chiefly, you can find the link to his amazing book, Terror on the Tube, Behind the Veil of 7-7, which I personally recommend and have read. That will be in the link under the description. And we, you have, Dr. Nick Colstrom is a prolific writer. He has written on all kinds of amazing and informative and very interesting well, topics, especially much, for those of us. Yeah. Well, you have about real history. You have real history. You've researched real history, your history of scientists. 
So you actually have science and history combined and you have a pretty much unique position in that you're able to self-publish and you don't have any people that, you know, that pay you to write things. You write what you believe to be true and what the research directs you towards. That's a, well, it's invaluable, isn't it? In this day and age, having somebody who writes what he wants to write. Yeah, okay, Sarah. Well, listen, I think this has been great and possibly at future date we could have a look at the gunpowder plot, which I think was Britain's original February terror event. Perhaps we could go back to that sometime. Oh, you stole my final line. Oh, you wonderful, you wonderful. No, it's wonderful. I was going to say, if that hasn't enticed you enough, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Nick has been researching the gunpowder plot, the original, the original, perhaps, force like terror event in the UK. And we'll be going all into that and all over that very soon. If not, in the meantime, one of his other amazing books in the interim. Ladies and gentlemen, do your own research as always. Believe nothing of what we tell you. Go read the books. Do, do your own homework. And please, please consider this. The people, quote unquote, teaching your children are the ones who've perpetrated all this stuff against the British people. The people who are, quote unquote, teaching your children are actually indoctrinating them to believe that the state is good, that the state never does anything wrong, and this is dangerous. Guys, please have a little think about it. Do your own research and please come and talk to me if you want to rescue your children from the state indoctrination centres. If you're unsure and don't know what you're doing, I have a free course available to you on the 3rd, 4th, 5th of August. That's Thursday the 3rd, Friday the 4th and Saturday the 6th of August. And I will be here to teach you for an hour and a half for free how to get your kids out, keep them out and give them a real education. And I must admit that Dr. Nick Collishram's work is well on the history syllabus. Dr. Nick Collishram, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure, Sarah. Pleasure. Talk to you soon, Sarah. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.